This is the Saturday Session with Daniel McCarty and Grant Elliott. Very good morning. Welcome into New Year's Eve. Mark Watson in for Daniel McCarty, in for Grant Elliott, with you through to one o'clock this afternoon alongside of me, Ben Francis. Hopefully you've had a wonderful Christmas. Hopefully you're enjoying the balmy weather around the country. Telephone number 0800 150 811. That's 0800 150 811. You can text us here on 8833. Very shortly we'll talk a little bit of cricket. We'll look back on the drawn test between Pakistan and New Zealand. We will talk some baseball, our Legends Hour, between 11 and 12. In fact, it won't be an hour. We're going to catch up with Andrew Mark, one of New Zealand's best domestic baseball players of all time, arguably our best domestic player of all time, a member of the Auckland Tuatara professional baseball team who play in the Australian Baseball League. Howard Dobson, or you might remember him as Dobbo's Plays of the Week, will join us on the programme too, as he wants to have a look at the upcoming Halberg Awards, also more sports people recognised and honoured in the New Year's honours list. But when you look back through history, why have some athletes in New Zealand sport never been knighted when others have? We will discuss that as well. We're going to talk hockey after 12 o'clock and then we'll also preview the Auckland Tuatara who take on the Adelaide Giants in Game 4 of what has been an intriguing series. The Adelaide Giants, very much the form team in the Australian Baseball League. They are leaders in the South East Division. Tuatara currently sitting second in the North West Division. Currently, it is the Adelaide Giants who lead that series by two games to one. All that and a lot more. As I've said, if you've got any thoughts on the sporting weekend, feel free to give us a call on 0800 or you can text us here on 8833. Updating the two games of English Premier League football for you this morning. Half-time between Liverpool and Leicester City. Leicester City scoring early. Liverpool have come back. They lead that 2-1 at half-time. West Ham United fans, well, not such good news for you. 58 minutes gone in that game. It is Brentford leading West Ham by two goals to nil. Ben Francis, good morning. Welcome. How are you? Very good, mate. Yourself? Yeah, very well, thank you. Just trying to... um. Yeah, get back into sort of radio mode, sort of dial myself back in, just flowing back from Australia to do some baseball commentary and um, a little bit of work to pay some bills. How was your Christmas? Oh, it was very good. Spent the week down in Taupo, got back very early this morning. Uh, big highlight, big highlight for me being away was going fishing on the on the wonderful lake there, some trout fishing. And how lucky were you? Is fishing about luck? Oh, well, I caught my first ever fish. Which was a good start. Oh, good on you! So I caught caught two decent sized trout. So we had one for dinner last night, and uh, the guy who we went out with, so his name is Joe. I'm going to give him a shout out here because he was absolutely fantastic. Joe from uh, Topor Fishing. If you ever want to go do some trout fishing, give her, go check him out. He was fantastic. We caught two beautiful ones, and he actually smoked this one for us and then yeah. went and dropped it off. But absolutely fantastic out on the boat with him, full of energy, uh, you know, very helpful and teaching, you know, the proper techniques and everything like that. Just had so much fun with him out on the mm-hmm. water. And the best part, you know, after you catch a couple of great fishes, then just jumping off the boat straight into the lake. Yeah, it's a great thing, isn't it, Lake Taupor? I mean, you can actually drink the water from the lake. Years ago, I was actually lucky enough to do a relay across the lake. It's 42 kilometres of swimming relay and I think we had six and 
um, we started over at Takanu, which is the southern end of the lake. And I think it was only there for the first 800 metres or first 1,000 metres you weren't allowed to change over. You just had to get out of the bay. Everyone was given a little boat with a skipper on board and then you decided how you wanted to work it. So you might have three minutes in the water and then someone else might dive and touch your feet and then they start swimming for three minutes or you could do it in six-minute sessions. And I tell you, we had the most beautiful day, um, absolutely glass out there. And the great thing about it is I had a steamboat, so I didn't have to smell diesel engines. So I didn't have to worry about seasickness because diesel engines will do it to me. But there was just something nice about swimming in fresh water. Oh, it's just so refreshing. We actually did a midnight midnight swim as well, just to give it a go. Just trying to make the most mm. of it while you're down there because it's just abs- it's just beautiful down there. Mm. Uh, it was also quite nice as well. Went up Mount Ruapehu. Yep. Um, a bit of snow still on the mountain, which is quite extraordinary in the middle of summer. So no, I had had a blast and ready to end the new year of this year on a high. Uh, I've got a question, and we had a big debate one year at Christmas. It almost ruined our Christmas. My older brother and I, or our family, it was a ridiculous argument. But is fishing a fair fight? And is what, fishing a fair fight? You put a bit of food on a hook, you drop it down, and you pull up a fish. Is that a fair fight, or should we be diving down with a knife and taking this thing on one-on-one? Well, you could be, but in Taupo, you're not allowed to use bait to catch the fish. No, I realise that, but I'm just saying, see, you know, ocean fishing. Is it a fair fight? Text us, double eight double three. like to know, double eight double three. Fishing a fair fight? Does it need to be a fair fight? Okay, now um, we've got some racing to do. We've got the Punters Club this morning, Ben. Yeah, so that's right. Of course, no mail run this morning. And I see a few people have actually been texting through in the morning going on about the Punters Club. There's no mail run this morning, but the mail run will be on tomorrow. So we've been tasked to do the Punters Club. So for everyone that is listening, they should know, text your full name. Full name, because I will not pick you if you do not use your full name. Your location, your TAB account number, and our code word for today is FINAL. So text that through you got throughout the show, and uh, you could be in the selected for the Pundits Club for the Good Oil, which is on after us at 1 o'clock. Okay, are we going to re-emphasize that a little bit later on again, or is that their one shot right now? Oh, we might we might give them one more chance later, but okay. this is this is this is your first and could be your last warning. Okay, six and a half minutes after ten, second half of the Liverpool Leicester City game has started. Liverpool leading two one. Sixty two minutes gone, and the other one it is West Ham United who trail Brentford. West Ham United at home they trail by two goals to nil. Now. We had overnight the fifth day, well not overnight, last night, live coverage here on SENZ, of Pakistan and New Zealand in a test match. Now, New Zealand were in a reasonably good position to try and win this match. Pakistan in their first inning scored 438. New Zealand in reply scored 612. Giving them a reasonable lead. I was just trying to do the maths. What are we talking? 62 plus 12. So we're talking 74 run lead. In reply, Pakistan came back out and scored 311. The tail wagged. Pakistan then decided to clear and set New Zealand a target with 15 overs remaining. New Zealand decided not to really go after it. Ended up being a drawn match. The big talking point in the game, Kane Williamson, of course, 200 not out. So double century for him. 25th test century for Kane Williamson. Tom Blundell's 47, Daryl Mitchell contributed with 42 and a very good century at the top of the order for Tom Latham. Latham now goes ahead of John Wright as our most successful opener in terms of test hundreds. Doesn't seem to quite have the profile that perhaps John Wright had. 
I still think when Wright and Edgar were playing cricket in the 1980s, I don't think the wickets were quite as benign as they are now. I'm not sure they were as conducive for batting as what we see today. I just wonder, though, whether or not England, under Brendan McCullum, would have gone after that would have tried to chase down the target set by Pakistan. I think Ben Stokes and England would have gone for it. Basically playing the T20 game in the name of trying to win the game. We still seem to be relatively conservative. The positives out of it, well done to Ish Sodi for picking up 6 for 86 of 36.5 overs. Stunning performance. Normally really only gets a shot, doesn't he, in the T20 in some one-day one games. What I will say is I think New Zealand did a good job in picking Ajaz Patel, Bracewell and Sodi. When was the last time that we took three spinners into a test match. And we finally realising that if you want to be a great test-playing nation, you have to have a world-class spinner, no matter what the conditions. 0800 150 811 if you want to find the programme and comment on the cricket. We had to chase 138 runs of 15 overs. We decided not to go for it. Maybe through good bowling or just maybe the fact that we just don't have that attacking mindset. That's not the way New Zealand plays cricket historically. Now we do have some audio here from Captain... Tim Salvey. Interesting that Kane Williamson scores a double hundred in the first test that he's not captain. He's been out of sorts, I think, over the last two years, partly due to injury. But I also wonder whether that captaincy given to those top batters actually ends up being a little bit of a hindrance. I think the exception to the rule is Stephen Smith for Australia. He seems to thrive when he's given the captaincy. What did you make of that performance? Should we have chased 138 off 15? 0800 Let's hear from Tim Southey. I guess we got ourselves in a position to, to have won this test match and push for a win. But, um, but yeah, like I said, Pakistan showed some resistance today, and, and uh, especially in the lower, lower order. But um, I think, yeah position we got into um, would have been nice to have pushed on and got a win but I think yeah it's uh, it's been a pretty tough uh, five days and um, yeah, there's a lot of positives we can take out of it uh, did you intend to go for the target here okay. yeah did you intend to go for the target that when the Pakistan team declared uh, yeah I think it was pretty clear that we did intend to, to go for it um, would have been nice if the the light didn't um, would have been interesting if the light didn't play its part um, we certainly only had one um, 
one goal in mind, and that was to try and chase it down. Um, so yeah, that was our our mindset was to go out there, and I think you saw the way that the guys played was was um, was pretty clear in the way that we wanted to, to go about that chase. Uh, on day four, uh, you guys waited too long for Kane Williamson's double hundred. Don't you think had uh, you you guys have declared the inning, the result could have been different? <laughs> I guess in hindsight, you've got uh, got that, but. I think um, it, we gave ourselves uh, a, a four sessions to bowl, bowl Pakistan out and, and chase down whatever we needed to. So, um, yeah, I think uh, Kane played extremely well alongside each to get us into a position where we could could declare. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, as I say, there wasn't a lot of assistance in the surface for, for a long time throughout this test match. And, and for us to get into a position after losing the toss to, to push for a win was, um, yeah, I guess we played some great cricket to get to that position. Tim, uh, you captain New Zealand for the first time in Test. Uh, talk us through that all the emotions that you went through, uh, being a captain, also leading the bowling attack. Uh, how it always uh, went for you? Um, yeah, it wasn't too dissimilar. Um, we're pretty closely with Kane and, and Tom over the last few years. Um, so yeah, it's more of a, a collective group that sort of drive the side. And um, yeah, I guess I'm the one that's making the decisions. Um, so no, it wasn't too. Too dissimilar to what uh, what it normally was. It was nice to get out there and um, and yeah, and experience it. And it was a, a true honour to, to lead New Zealand in a, in a Test match. Captain, were you surprised with that uh, decision of declaration by Pakistan? And uh, second test uh, will be here again. So, what will you say about this dead tracks? Uh, a lot of people are criticising the pitch. Um, yeah, I think um, interesting declaration, probably a little bit uh, of, a, of a token sort of declaration towards the end there. Um, but yeah, we're, our mindset was to, to try and chase it down. Um, it's a shame that the light played its played its part. Um, I think the guys, the way they went out and showed that um, we we wanted to try and chase it down, and the way that the guys did play was 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 very pleasing to go and see. Um, yeah, the surface was. Uh, was was tough work um, for everyone. Um, the guys that scored runs, they had to work extremely hard, and the guys that took wickets had to work extremely hard. So, um, yeah, I'm not that. Uh, yeah, it's up to the curator to, to decide, I guess, what what sort of surfaces they're going to prepare. Hey Tim, this is Viram Kazi from Grassroots Cricket. You, of course, have been around for quite a while. Have taken 350 Test wickets. This surface wasn't particularly conducive to pace bowling. How did you enjoy bowling on the surface? And also, given that you're quite a senior player, are you looking to lead New Zealand into the next cycle of the World Test Championship as well? Um, yeah, it's always a challenge as a pace bowler when you come to this part of the world. Um, wasn't a lot of assistance out there, but you've still got a still got a role to play in trying to find ways to um, either deny the opposition runs or, or try and take wickets. So um, that's also an exciting challenge which I enjoy coming to this part of the world as a, as a pace bowler and um, and really testing yourself on, on some pretty tough surfaces so um, yeah I enjoy that. Um, I haven't thought too far ahead uh, first test match in charge so um, yeah we'll, we'll take it uh, game by game series by series and see where we uh, see where we end up. Hey Tim Salty, uh, you lose uh, four back-to-back -back test matches uh, in New Zealand sides and Pakistan also lose uh, four back-to-back -back, uh, test matches do you think that this is uh, only draw match and next match will be the challenging one for both of team Pakistan and New Zealand as well? Um, yeah, I guess we're a couple of days to reflect on, on the last five days and um, turn up in a couple of days' time and, and see what surfaces in front of us and um, and try and push for a, for a test win like you do every time you take the field. You're looking to, to win test matches for your country.
So a word on Ishuri's performance. I mean, he acclimatized uh, really well and, and on this track and, you know, took six wickets. So how pleased are you with Ishuri's performance in this match? Yeah, I think it's first test match for, for four years or, or close to four years. And uh, not only his bowling, but I think his partnership and his contribution with the bat was uh, was exceptional. Um, he's, uh, like I say, hasn't played test cricket for a long time for him to come back in and, and have a, have an impact straight away was very pleasing. And he can be extremely proud of his his test match. And, um, and yeah, like I say, it's not easy when you haven't played for a while to come in and and uh, and, and to contribute both with bat and ball is very pleasing and, and, and great for Ish to, to be able to do that. Yeah, there you go. And so my apologies because I sort of watched um, a large part of that game um, and had been told earlier this morning that we didn't seem that intent on trying to win this game. And yet, listening to Tim Southey, clearly they did everything right. Someone's just texted and they were going at 8.13 runs and over. So apologies to New Zealand Cricket for making that assumption and well done to them for looking to try and take the victory um, against Pakistan. It's important for Test Cricket, as Brendan McCullum, Ben Stokes has said, we've got to get bums on seats, we've got to make it important, we've got to make it entertaining. And look, I would rather us lose trying to win than just the draw. No one remembers the draw. No one cares. New Zealand cricket don't have a legacy like the All Blacks. It's okay for them to lose. I mean, it's not okay, but we don't expect a lot. And therefore, I think that gives them a little bit more freedom in terms of chasing victories. Are someone saying, why is there no crowd? Uh, Cannot answer that. But even in Australia, crowds are down at test matches around the country, aren't they? Good crowds for Adelaide in the day-night test. Not quite world record crowds for the Boxing Day test against South Africa. Really poor crowd to the MCG for the one-day game against England. Um, played in December. I think only 10,000 people turned up. It didn't even look like that. And I think cricket is in a really precarious position at the moment in regards to how the game looks, what is its point of view, and how do you recapture that magic of the 80s and the 90s? But what we should say is well done to Tim Southey on a double hundred. Well and truly establishing himself as our... Uh, sorry, what did I say? Oh, did I say Tim Southey? Kane Williamson, my apologies. I think it's just that time of the year. Uh, Kane Williamson for his, you know, arguably becoming our most prolific and people will say based on the number of hundreds, our greatest ever batsman. I still think technically the best batsman we've seen, or I've certainly seen, is Martin Crow. I think Glenn Turner, uh, another one. Turner... Refused to play for New Zealand for a long time. Felt that um, he should be paid. But was prolific. Still a long way to go, I would suggest, in the career of Kane Williamson. Shavin, Shavin, good afternoon. Good morning. G'day, here you go, Mark. Yeah, good, thanks. That's the story. Hey, just on the cricket last night, I was pretty happy with New Zealand's effort overall. Yeah. Um, really, the number I think the number eight and the number nine batsmen got got a fifty-five and a forty-three, and we really had them on the ropes then, and we just couldn't quite. If we knocked them over, got through that tail, would have been a very different. Would have would have been a convincing win for New Zealand. Um, it's just another example of Test cricket with some tail end runs tipping the balance, and you could argue Ash Sodi's uh, 60-odd that he got was 
in the same vein. Yeah, look, very rarely in sides these days do you have, um, you know, just pure bowlers. I mean, most cricketers these days are, are almost genuine all-rounders, all of them. Uh, you're often going to get your, you know, your one bowler who bats at 11, and I think it's the case, you know, historically with Bolt. Uh, but these days, yeah, everyone seems to be able to swing a bat. And maybe that's just professionalism. You've got more time now. You've got more time to practice. And there's really no excuse, is there, not to be reasonably handy with the bat? Well, I think in test cricket, it's vital that um, it's such an arm wrestle. Um, you may be selected as a bowler, but then you've got the ability to swing a match mm. to make a difference, um, even if it's even if it's batting out for a draw at times. Mm. Um, I think coming out of this test, we go into the second test in pretty good um, position. Um, Ish Sodi has played bugger all white ball, uh, red ball cricket in the last eight years. Um, I think he can only improve mm. with his outing out there, and hopefully our quicks can um, can work a bit more on getting some reverse swing. Um, and Kane, Kane can just keep being Kane. Um, I think that's awesome. He's had a bit of criticism this year, but really. Just let him be Kane. I mean, if I was throwing a fancy dress party, um, he can just come as Kane. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting with the selection of Neil Wagner because I'm a big Neil Wagner fan, but you talk about reverse swing. Neil Wagner's not that bowler, is he? Neil Wagner's the guy that's going to put you on the back foot. Neil Wagner's that guy that's just going to pepper you. Neil Wagner's that guy that's going to frustrate you. And he's better suited, yeah. I think, to the Southern Hemisphere or the English-type wickets than perhaps what we're going to get on the subcontinent. But, um, boy, you'd have him in the trenches every day of the week. Still not convinced on Michael Bracewell, even though he did take, you know... Um, a number of wickets in this test. To me, there's just no X factor about him. I'd rather see us genuinely invest full time in Patel or Sodi going forward. I, I think I think we're going to select three spinners for the next test. So so he gets another chance. I, I can see what you mean, but um, yeah, you're right. Um, he needs to um, do a yeah X factor is what's missing. But then he's got the next test to show that. And um, that's probably more chances than a lot of spinners get for New Zealand. Yeah. Hey, look, lovely having you phone the program. Do appreciate it. So thank you. Shaven there, joining us out of Christchurch. Telephone number is 0800 150 It is 22 minutes after 10. And just want to acknowledge too, um, for that particular segment, PGG Rights and Turf. So that is PGG Rights and Turf. Write it down. Take note. If they're part of any future purchasing decision, please go with those brands, those names that are supporting us here on SENZ. You're listening to the Saturday Session. Mark Watson with you on this New Year's Eve. PGG Rights and Turf, premium suppliers of turf seed and maintenance products to New Zealand cricket grounds across New Zealand. Plenty of live cricket commentary to come here on SENZ over the summer. Well, New Year's honours lists were announced today. And good to see Eric Murray, Hamish Bond being recognised as we saw Nico Porteous, Zoe Sadowski, Sinnott picking up members of the New Zealand Order of Merit. Paul Cole, squash player, also picking up the equivalent award. Corey Peters, Paralympic champion, becoming a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit. Silver Ferns great, Anna Harrison. Triple Code New Zealand representative has also been made a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit. Kieran Smith was made a companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to sports governance after 11 years as chief executive of the New Zealand Olympic Committee. 
Silver Ferns coach Lee Gibbs was made a companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit after more than 50 years of service in netball as a player. The big news is that Farrah Palmer became the first female rugby player to be appointed a dame, basically a knighthood. She joins the 12 previous men with links to New Zealand rugby who have received knighthoods. Look, congratulations to these people, but the system is fundamentally flawed. How come it is always rugby that ends up picking up these knighthoods? How many rugby league people have ever received knighthoods? How many softballers have ever received them? Do we have a prejudice towards blue collar or the working man's game or the working class game in this country? How come Daniel Loder has never received a knighthood Yet Valerie Adams has. Others have also picked up knighthoods for much less. The likes of the Michael Jones and some of those 12 previous men with links to rugby. Lisa Carrington, a knighthood. But why not Loder? What, he didn't have the personality? We couldn't relate to him? The problem with these honours is it's just becoming a box-ticking exercise now. It's just wokeism at its finest. I'm not saying these people don't deserve them, but there's just no consistency. And we're going to see a similar thing when the Helberg nominations are finalised. Joining us now on the programme to discuss this is Howard Dobson, who was a long-time judge on the Halberg Awards. He joins us, Stobbo. Good morning, welcome. How are you, Mark? Uh, happy New Year, mate. Yeah, well, I'm trying to be happy. Did I sound happy? I didn't really uh, sound uh, happy then, did I, Dobbo? Oh, look, we should celebrate those who have been picked, but surely, uh, I'm with you, there's a number that haven't been that certainly deserve <laughs> more recognition. Winton Roofer springs to mind. Uh, Mr. Winyard, who's 10 11 all-rounder world championships in timber sports. And if uh, Lisa Carrington can get a damehood for five kayak gold medals, what about uh, Mr Ferguson, who's got four Olympic kayak gold medals? And then you can throw in McDonald as well, he's got three. So, yeah, there's some names that are missing, but so good old, good old now, Father Palmer. Uh, she totally deserves her damehood, uh, what, three World Cup triumphs as captain, plus all the admin stuff Yeah, but I sort of buy into that, but let's be honest, rugby's women's rugby, previously, I mean, let's be honest, it was a two-horse competition, it's basically one of the biggest minority sports on the planet, and let's not even pretend that it wasn't, I mean, it's got a little bit bigger now, and well done to the Black Ferns this year, but why, you know, where were the accolades for the New Zealand men's rugby league team when they won the World Cup? Did Stephen Kearney get knighted? Did Nathan Kalis end up picking anything up for being captain? No. Um, they didn't even win the damn Halberg Awards that year, did they? No, no. And, and look, you're right. I mean, we're seeing a lot of minor sports uh, who have succeeded at the Halbergs and with the Knighthoods and the Dames that are individual sports and that are predominantly, I suppose, with uh, Olympic or Commonwealth Games. And then we've got the situation where rugby leagues, neither um, Olympic or Commonwealth and I suppose when you look at who's actually won the World Cup, I think Great Britain won it in 71. We won it in 2008. Every other year pretty much has been the kangaroos. So it's comparing apples with oranges with bananas, which is which makes this task so hard. 
Yeah, I, I, I am just absolutely miffed on the Daniel Loder one because I'll argue that, yes, Peter Snell's achievements in 1964 were remarkable, but sport was still in its evolution. We didn't still have the African nations really entering long-distance athletics. You had Arthur Lydiard, who had revolutionised um, the way people trained and had come up with a very innovative training system, which gave the New Zealand athletes um, but not an unfair advantage, but certainly a jump on everybody else. Uh, where Loda, the two and four hundred freestyle. If you go to the Olympic Games, Dobbo, and you know this, it's the biggest sport in the first week I of the Olympics. It's, it's, yeah, it's the biggest sport in the in the first week of the Olympics. Ian Thorpe, the great Ian Thorpe, Thorpedo, didn't win the two and four hundred in two thousand in Sydney. He had to wait a further four years to do it. But because he was introverted, because we couldn't relate to him, I think the Queen's honour that he's got is one of the lowest you can get. I, I just, it, it, it's just this political correctness. This wokeness has just gone way too far now and it's almost patronising it actually, the awards start to lose credibility, it's a bit like what you're now seeing with the Academy Awards, well you know, there's been big talk that there haven't been enough um, African American um, actors or directors picking up awards there haven't been enough women and now you sort of sense that no matter how good anybody else is, we've got to make sure we tick that box. And look, I don't care if it's all African-American actors. I don't care if it's all women directors. Just make sure that it's done on merit. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're going to touch a few nerves here. And uh, there's going to be people who really want to throw the phone at you right now. But look, I mean, I think a lot of people do agree with you. And the consistency, well, is, is I mean, for these King's Honours Awards, Kings now, it's the first one. What's the Kings uh, And, I mean, who, who judges these? How are they assessed? Uh, what's the criteria? Do they have a minimum number that they have to do? Do we actually have to appoint them if, if, if there isn't someone who is at the absolute elite level to be acknowledged? Do we actually have to appoint them um, as a, a dame or night? But yeah, the transparency on that is probably a lot less than what happened with the Halbergs. You know, there's usually mm. 30 judges. And the splits quite often mm. twenty athletes and ten generals. So, yeah, I mean, how do how do they point at Wado? Well, well, I mean, but but but, but look at Nolene Taurua. So she picks up a damehood because they win the, the Netball World Cup in two thousand and seventeen. Another sport that is globally a minority sport. Four countries that can win it ends up getting knighted for winning that. Yet I'll go back to that Rugby League World Cup gets nothing. You go back to the seven titles men's softball have won. Anybody being knighted in that sport? Um, you know, yeah. why isn't someone then like a Gordon Walker being knighted for what he's done with Lisa Carrington? Arch Jelly's just turned 100. He picked up a ward, I think, when he was 98, coached the great John Walker to Olympic gold in 76. Uh, 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 there is just no consistency. Now, I don't have a problem, but again, you, you look at the Valerie Adams. How many people genuinely do you see on a Sunday morning throwing a shot put? Now, where is the, you know, genuinely, where is the philanthropic, um, side to these athletes, I'd argue while they're competing, it doesn't exist. Now, if they go on and use their name in the long term and do great things, where and they're not clipping the ticket along the way, they're doing it genuinely, then I don't have such a problem with it. But I don't see that in these athletes that have been recently uh, anointed dames or anointed sirs. Yeah, which begs the question, is it a popularity competition? <laughs> but, um, hey, you mentioned uh, a dozen... Um, Knights in New Zealand rugby. Do you know there's actually more? There's no definitive list, but I did a bit of research and there's a chap who played for the All Blacks in the late 1890s who went on to be knighted for services to Australian business. I can't remember his first name, but his his surname's Braddock. He played fullback for the All Blacks in the late um, 1890s. And another one that keeps getting left out who has got knighted 
for services to the hospital board and played about eight or nine tests for the All Blacks was uh, Harcourt, Pat, Cowie. Mm-hmm. So we've actually we don't actually have a definitive list, but I've come up with one. Uh, so in, in sort of playing fifteen, and we've got a few holes. Obviously, Sir Wilson Winneray uh, front row. We don't have a hooker. Gary Knight's in name, but he wasn't nice. Then at locks, you've got uh, Sir Colin Mead, Sir Brian Lahore, loose board, Sir Michael Jones, uh, Sir David John Graham also played lock. Um, and, of course, Richie McCaw turned down a knighthood, but he accepted that top 20 award for New Zealanders, yes. which is higher than a knighthood. Uh, then at halfback, we don't have one, but you imagine that David Kirk, the Rhodes Scholar, would be the closest one to getting a knighthood in the future. Uh, first five, Sir Fred Needles Allen. Uh, on the wings, B.G. Williams and obviously Sir John Kerwin for services to mental health. Braddock at fullback. So we've got a posse uh, still to fill at hooker, prop and second fives. Sir Steve Hansen played midfield for Canterbury, yeah, so yeah, maybe but, he can take the midfield but, 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 but Again, why, why does Steve Hansen get nominated? He lost a World Cup in 2019. He's paid an exhausted amount of money. Is he any different than any other coach in this country? I mean, he inherited a hell of a good side in 2015. In my opinion, along with Steve Chew, and this is just my opinion, have been instrumental in, I think, the, you know, the destruction of domestic New Zealand rugby, all in the name of the All Blacks. Judge me on the World Cup, he said. Well, we lost the World Cup and we go and knight the guy. How come those guys are knighted, yet other top coaches in this country aren't? How come Arthur Lydia never picked up a knighthood? Yeah, it's extraordinary. And of course, possibly the one, the absolute shocker was Yvette Corlett Williams got knighted after her death. So it got damed after her death. So that was a posthumous one as well. So yeah, the inconsistency is is, uh, shocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, Dobbo, if I, I might just get you to stay on the line. I do need to take a commercial break. I do apologise for this, but I want to come back and just have a look at the Halberg Awards too. I know you were a judge for it on a long time, and there's always a lot of contention. It's always a little bit subjective, but I just want to throw a few names out there again, a little bit along the lines of what we've been talking about. Is it a popularity contest? Is it about what sport gets the most media in this country, or are they seriously doing due diligence when it comes to actually awarding these awards? We'll do that next. You're listening to SENZ. Uh, you can phone us on the program. Program 0800 You can text us here on 8833. Mark Watson in for Daniel McCarty and Grant Elliott. Uh, just a text that has come in. Someone said, good to hear you, Watto. I agree, merit versus virtue signalling. Happy New Year. And someone talking about Mark Sorensen. He received minor honours, but five-time world champion as a player, one time as a coach. Yet Mark Sorensen has a higher honour than a QSM, a Queen Service Medal. Completely agree. Good guy, Mark Sorensen. Howard Dobson is my guest on the programme. A little bit of opinion uh, early on in the morning. Howard, uh, the Halberg Awards um, going to again be handed out in the month of February. What frustrates you about these awards? What do you like about them? Look, first and foremost, they were designed for the Helberg Trust. And despite all the debates and rhetoric and anger and joy with who wins what, they're, they're there to serve the purpose that Sir Murray and may rest in peace uh, to help disabled athletes. So for that, um, you can't speak higher. In terms of the whole process, again, apples with oranges with bananas, but there is an Olympic and Commonwealth bias, particularly an Olympic and Commonwealth year. I think every Olympic year except 1980, when Richard Hadley won it, has been won by an Olympian. And so there's a lot of frustration amongst your non-Olympic sports. You know, you, you think of uh, your Winton Roofer, who should have won it in 1994, being the top goal scorer in the UEFA <laughs> Champions League with Werder Bremen. 
and they gave it to Brenda Lawson and Philippa Baker, who are two wonderful women who won the pairs at the World Champs in the rowing in 94 and definitely deserved to be Team of the Year. But how Winter Marufa didn't get nominated is one of the biggest travesties. And then, of course, you've got the 08 where the Kiwis won the World Cup in the league and, again, <laughs> didn't, didn't get the, the gong that they wanted. Uh, so it is frustrating. And now that Sir Murray has passed, I'm thinking perhaps... They should do the Halbergs every two years, Commonwealth and Olympic year, and perhaps we need a non-Olympic awards where you've got uh, the Dixons and the motorsport. Of um, I mean, look, Stephen Adams is only one of three New Zealanders that made the NBA. It's the second hardest sport in the world. Uh, and then the football, of course, Chris Wood. Our most prolific global mm. uh, athletes aren't even being awarded. Mm. Um, because they're not winning on the highest stage, but just getting there, I think, supersedes. Uh, well, I mean, you, you you look at you, you look at Chris Wood trying to get a starting thing with Newcastle. What's it's currently second in the English Premier? You look at Stephen Adams, and I don't want to harp on about it, but you know we're happy to hand out awards, aren't we, for our netball players, and we're happy to hand out awards for some of our cricket players. But let's be honest, what those guys have to endure to get to the top in basketball and football, I'm sorry, is Way, way more difficult. Well, they're than in a different the galaxy. They are in a different it's galaxy a different completely. Galaxy and, the, and the Halberg Awards don't cater for them. There's no, not no. a highest well, global stage award, you know? Well, well, the other thing, too, you look at Brendan Hartley. The guy wins Le Mans this year, you know? One of the biggest motorsport events in the world. Part of what they consider to be the triple crown. The Indianapolis 500, Le Mans, and the Monaco Grand Prix. Is he even going to get a mention? You know, James McDonald, the jockey, ranked the number one jockey in the world this year. Is he going to get a mention? Probably not, because we don't rank them, do we? But, you know, it'll be just a whole lot more virtue signalling. Guarantee it. We'll make sure we've got our quota of everything chucked in in this politically correct world. Yeah, and I just come back to the fact that that you're comparing apples with oranges. It's the biggest problem. And because Sir Murray, bless him, was Olympic aligned and Commonwealth aligned and he won medals in, in you know, both those different events, um, there's sort of just a lean that Olympic medal is greater than an IndyCar win, uh, greater than you know, representing on the highest stage in football and basketball. So for me, I think they've got to look now at perhaps having an additional awards to the Hellbergs to really elevate those mm. non-Olympic sports. Because the way to get um, a Halberg Award, and not in every case, is, is to dominate a minor sport that, that falls within the Olympic and Commonwealth codes. And hence all the anger and frustration, you know, in the leagueies. Uh, I mean, let's be honest, you mentioned netball. There's only a couple of countries that can win. I think three, Jamaica, New Zealand, and Australia, obviously. I, I don't know whether England's won the netball world champs. No, but, but, but with the league, there's only three, three teams that can only win the league, and that's Great Britain slash England and New Zealand who won it once, and yeah. Aussie. So if they can do it for netball, why can't they do it for rugby league? Oh, oh, look, absolutely. But I'll even argue rugby for a long time was not dissimilar as well. You know, these sports that are world famous in this country are not actually global sports at all. I mean, look, I remember Cameron Brown finishing second in the Hawaii Ironman in 2002. I was there, the hardest individual event in the world. It wasn't a great year. I think the 
ever Swindell girls ended up finishing second at the Rowing World Championships and they gave it to the Swindells. And I'm like, well, hang on a minute. You've got two people in a boat over seven minutes. So you've got each other to lean on. And then you've got Cameron yep. out there on his own, basically, you know, having to fund his entire way in the hardest sporting event in the world. And they gave it with rowing. And I just sit there, what, because Cameron wasn't a big enough name? What, you're somehow going to lose some credibility because he didn't perhaps have the brand name that the Swindell girls had? I just sit there, shake my head. I go back to Lydia Co winning it because she was 16 years of age. She didn't actually win anything, but we'll give it to Lydia Co. I mean, I think she's got more merit this year being ranked number one in the world than when she actually did win the damn award. Yeah, fair comment. Fair comment. Look, thank goodness, and I keep bringing it back, the, the, the whole purpose of the Hellbergs is that trust, and they make a lot of money, and people like Sophie Pascoe have been huge uh, benefactors of it. So for that reason, you know, I applaud it, but there'll always be the ongoing debate. And, uh, look, it's an honour, and people do their sport because they love it. People do it because they get highly paid. I don't even know whether it's in Stephen Adams' collective consciousness that he hasn't got a Hellberg. (laughs) I don't think he's thinking about it. But, you know, the heritage of New Zealand sport is rugby and Olympics, isn't it? That's Mm. where our majority of our sporting success has happened, with a few exceptions, and that seems to be embraced more than others. Yeah. Hey, Dobbo, lovely to have you on the programme. Have a great new year and let's uh, catch up in the new year and get you on the programme regularly. Love it. Yeah, great, great debate, great debate. And look, well done, uh, you know, to have a, a Dane in rugby. She's deserved it. I think you've made a very good point. She's deserved it more than some of the All Black Knights. So let's just leave it at that. Yeah, absolutely. Well done, Dobbo. Thank you. 0800 150 811 is the number. It is coming up to 10 minutes away from 11. Cricket coverage here on SENZ, courtesy of PGG Rights and Turf Key Suppliers to New Zealand Cricket Grounds. Right, uh, let's go back to the Punters Club, Ben Francis. Yeah, so of course no mail run today, so we are in charge of the Punters Club. So please text through your full name. I repeat that full name because some people are not doing that. Your location, your TAB account number, and the code word is FINAL, F-I-N-A-L, FINAL. We've had a couple of other variations of that word so just reiterating that there's still a few spots available so get those through if you want to be part of the punters club with the good oil after one o'clock fantastic just updating the english premier league west ham getting beaten by brentford by two goals to nil liverpool leading leicester city by two goals to one and round about a minute left in injury time before that game comes to an end my team liverpool starting to play like the liverpool of old good to see simi cast back also nubby cater coming back on there's a Cross from Leicester goes right across the front of the Liverpool goal. Right, um, coming up after 11 o'clock, we'll have our Legends out, Andrew Mark, one of New Zealand's premier domestic baseball players on the programme. Quality, quality player. The boy or the man they call Pinky. And we'll also talk some hockey. And we'll also take your calls on 0800 150 You can text the programme here on 8833 if you want to have your discussion on, again, the King's Honours, still in the habit of saying the Queen's Honours, as well as the upcoming Halberg Awards. Four minutes away from 11. 11 o'clock, you're listening to SENZ. Think legendary care, think Somerset Retirement Villages. Think new friends, new laughs and new home, think Somerset Retirement Villages. Check out Somerset, somerset somerset.co.nz. The segment normally on a Saturday is dedicated to a local sporting legend. And so we've gone slightly left field. I'm not sure he has played left field, probably played centre field, probably played right field. I know that he's done a lot of pitching in his day. 
He's an icon in New Zealand baseball circles. His nickname is Pinky. His name on his birth certificate, I assume, is Andrew Mark. He joins us on the program. Andrew, good morning. Welcome. Morning, Watto. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Okay, everyone refers to you in baseball circles as Pinky. Where did the nickname come from? Um, the harsh sun in, of New Zealand uh, gives me a bit of a pink skin, and uh, spending so much time outside, it just uh, yeah, just every uh, weekend I seem to get pinker and pinker. <laughs> and you're Dutch origins originally? Yeah, my uh, my Oma and Opa um, came from Holland, and my my dad's obviously Dutch. So, um, yeah, big part of my life. My Oma and Opa are very special to me. So. Mm. Yeah, and where did you grow up, Andrew? Uh, so I was born, and raised in Hawaiipakaranga. Went to school out here, um, and yeah, played for the local club my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. yeah, yeah. I want to ask baseball. I mean, it's becoming um, very popular now. It's a fast-growing sport here in New Zealand. I think part of that is because of Sky Television, the fact it's in our living rooms, and the influence the Americans have on us. It's a national sport in Korea, Japan, a national sport in a lot of South American countries. But why did you choose it? I mean, softball, cricket, they're the two big sports. Yeah, it was it was a strange one. Um, for some reason, I just got fascinated by the sport. Um, I was watching all the baseball movies growing up as a kid. Um, my dad would go to the U.S. for work quite often and bring me back some um, baseball stuff, shirts, gloves, and that kind of stuff. And, yeah, just watching the movies, um, just really just fell in love with the sport, really. And then it just so happened that the biggest club in New Zealand was um, down the road from where I lived. And one day driving to school, I remember seeing the sign on the side of the road that said play baseball and uh, that's what I did. Yeah, and how much depth was there? I mean, were there a lot of kids playing baseball when you got into it, Andrew? How, how old are you now? I'm 33 now. Um, there was very few of us at the start. Um, we're kind of the uh, the people we've had to put in the hard yards when there wasn't really any um, facilities or um, the coaching was... Um, I mean, they tried their best, but they didn't have the experience um, that we've got here in New Zealand now. Um, the, the fields and stuff, I mean, where we play at Haukapakaranga, half the fields were um, farms, and so we were playing next to a whole bunch of cows and sheep at the time. So, mm. and, and when did you start to realise that perhaps you had a little bit of ability? So... Coming from the small uh, player pool, you're also um, very likely to make New Zealand teams. Um, so going, growing up, I made every New Zealand team except one when I missed out to my sister. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, every time we'd go overseas, um, I'd be one of the better performers for New Zealand. And um, I've yeah, just had a lot of interest from... Um, coaches and uh, scouts and stuff over the years where they just kept telling me to work hard and um, I also had a really good group of friends um, especially when I got a bit older that all kind of wanted the same thing and wanted to uh, make baseball their job and help grow the sport here. So um, we always kind of motivated each other to get better. Mm-hmm. And you started uh, positionally. Did, did you play all positions on the park? I know, um, you know, as you sort of got into your adulthood, uh, pitching was the priority, but um, did, did you experience most positions in, in the ballpark? 
Yep. So gro- growing up, I was uh, yeah, just played everywhere. Um, being in New Zealand um, meant that it was kind of easier to be dominant as a pitcher. Um, so I, I would go out there most weeks and throw shutouts and um, no hitters and really thought that I was kingpin of pitching. Um, probably deep down, or um, I was actually always better at hitting, um, but because it's hard to get kind of the uh, experience you need against the high velocity, it was, it was tough to, to know where I was at. Um, and because I was throwing decently hard, I was able to get to college as a pitcher. Um, so I never really played a position at a high level until the Tuatara came around in 2018. Mm. Yeah, but there was a point in, you talked about going to college. I understand that you went and played some baseball, what, in Canada in your teenage years? Yeah, so um, the group that I grew up with, we all went and played like a summer ball league um, in Edmonton. And from there, I was able to um, get an um, offer to go to a college over in Oregon. And I had a year there. Um, it was it was really, really tough. And uh, financially, college is very expensive. It's a lot easier for New Zealanders now to get access to scholarships and that kind of thing. But at that time, it was quite a lot of financial pressure. Um, so decided to finish finish up at college and try and do like I played for the Brisbane Bandits after that um, and finished my degree here in Auckland. Just kind of made more sense for me at the time. Mm. Yeah, you went across and played for the Brisbane Bandits in the Australian Baseball League in 2011 alongside another New Zealand, another infielder, Daniel Lamb Hunt. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, so it was pretty surreal actually. Um, only uh, playing... Um, in New Zealand and then at college in the States, the ABL was a a real step up for me and um, a real professional setup they have there in Brisbane where it was, um, yeah, a real eye-opener and also kind of made me fall in love with the game again, um, where after that I decided to go over to Canada and play in their, like, independent leagues that they've got there um, and do, yeah, one more crack at it. Mm-hmm. And you say one more crack at it. What primarily? What were you lacking? Why didn't you perhaps take it to that next level? As you said, you were probably a big fish in a small pond back here in New Zealand. What was the difference between, say, the standard that you're experiencing in Canada and North America versus what you'd experienced here? Yeah, I think it was um, the velocity. Um, I never threw probably as hard as I needed to. Um, and I think all part of it as well was my um, me- mental side wasn't as strong as it probably could have been. They often say that pitching's like 90% mental, um, but we don't really do any practice on that side of the game. And coming from New Zealand, I hadn't really experienced much failure before. So every time I would get knocked down, it was kind of hard for me to get back up. And um, so, yeah, getting, getting used to that and... Um, yeah, I think that's something where I could have uh, could have got better, but I think that's something where we'll be able to pass on to the uh, younger generations as well and help mm. them get through that mm. kind of stuff. Arguably, the closest to New Zealand has got to actually making the major league, and I talk about a player that's you know genuinely born here, growing up here, and played some baseball here. Is Scott Campbell um, came very close to playing for the Toronto Blue Jays. Did did you play much with Scott through the age group ranks? 
Yeah, so Scott was kind of one of my heroes growing up. Um, I remember when I was about 13 years old, Scott asked me to go um, stand at first base and he was throwing balls across the earth. It was absolutely killing my hand, but I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. Um, and then in 2000 and for a long time ago, the first World Baseball Classic that we got to go to, um, playing alongside Scott, um, and then in the most um, the second one as well, got to play with him. And then to being coached by him at the most recent one was really awesome because it was like basically a full circle of um, of his career. Mm-hmm. 2018, big news comes out that New Zealand is going to put a team into the Australian Baseball League. Um, the vision uh, very much of Ryan Flynn. Uh, did that? What? What? Yeah. What? What emotions uh, went through your head when you heard that? And and what did that do for your baseball career? Yes, yeah, so I was. I was just playing locally at the time, um, and I was yeah being um, one of the better hitters in the um, New Zealand competition year in year out, and um, really wanted to challenge myself and see what I could do. Um, I've always thought that I would be able to hit against um, the pitching of, of, of that quality. And, yeah, I wanted to go out there and um, give it a shot and see what I could do. Um, I mean, being well, – I, I get a hit in my um, in my batting cage every day, so I probably get a little bit of an advantage um, with that. And, um, yeah, I just really wanted to try and give it my all, so I decided to – yeah, work work really hard in the off season to um to get into the shape that I needed to get into and um yeah, really perform. Yeah, in the 2019-2020 season, Tuatara ends up winning the Northeastern Division. Uh, it was a remarkable time for baseball. A lot of the momentum lost due to COVID. But you were arguably the best hitter in the league. You were batting almost close to 400, which means four out of every 10 at bats, you were successful, which is world class. It just shows how much baseball is dominated by the ball. Did that surprise you? I wouldn't say surprise. Um, I've always, um, I've always really believed in myself. Um, so to to do it, it was wonderful. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say surprising because I always believe in myself, and um, I'm one of the most competitive people um, out there. So. Um, and I've always wanted to win, and that's kind of the main thing. And so and I knew that that team had something special, and we were doing something for the whole city of Auckland and all of baseball here. So I was really motivated to do well, um, and, yeah, had a, had a blast doing it. Mm. And you're back with the team this year, more in the role of of a designated hitter, but it hasn't been a great start to the season because you, you, you picked up a hand injury, but you have played in this current series against the Adelaide Giants. Um, where, where do you feel your game's at at the moment? Yeah, so all the way, um, I got a little fracture in my hand um, about three or four months ago. And so I had to get surgery on my hand and they took out a little bone that was fractured off. Um, so just kind of, yeah, he- healing that, getting the scar right. Um, I'm still, still um, not as, strong with my hand as I'm making, as I was then um, so just trying to make some adjustments at the moment um, so it's getting a little bit top hand dominated because the other hand is not quite as strong as it is so 
um, I mean, after this phone call, I'm going to get in the cage and um, do a little bit more practice to make sure I'm ready for today. Mm, yeah, now you do have a very successful business out there in Howick Pakaranga called the Field House, which gives play people or the public an opportunity to get into a batting cage, have a look at what it might, you know, if you want to dial it up to 100 mile an hour, 70 mile an hour. Uh, equally the same with indoor cricket machines. Tell us a little bit about that business. Yeah, so it's just, um, it's like a driving range, but um, yeah, a little bit of um, baseball flair to it. So we've got baseball and softball and cricket machines that um, anyone can come down and give it give it a crack. Um, you can yeah, put it any speed you want. So we get, I've got my little six-year-old hitting off some of the machines. So it's uh, fun for everyone. Um, we also got a radar gun set up now so if anyone wants to come in and see how hard they they throw i know a lot of people think they can throw really hard but um it really um will show what you can do once you get in here um and we've got all the um the equipment you need so you just rock on up and give it a whirl okay how many national titles have you won with Howard packaranga and did you win any with a couple of seasons that you had with bayside yeah i think i've won Eight total now, um, six of them with Howick and two of them with Bayside. Fantastic. And uh, the motivation's still there. Do you think you can see yourself, what, next year again with the Tuatara? Yeah, I um, yeah, I want to do one more World Baseball Classic. It's kind of where I'm at now, um, which is in 2024. So, mm. um, I've, uh, yeah. I was um, progressing really nicely going into the World Baseball Classic and this hand injury just kind of slowed everything down and mm-hmm. um, took my focus away from my training. So I'm not quite where I need to be, um, but I'm going to have a really good off-season again and make sure that mm-hmm. um, 2023-24 season is the best yet. And just just finally, from when you first came into the sport of baseball to what you're seeing now to the number of New Zealanders that are associated with the Tuatara, um, how much greater is the depth? How much has the sport moved and evolved since you getting into the sport as a young person? Yes, it's come a really, really long way. Um, having um, It's like a generational thing as well. I think um, the fact that I've got two kids, um, Scott Campbell's got two kids, similar age, um, Aaron Campbell, there's a whole bunch of people now that have got kids in the sport and are now coaching as well. So be able to give the kids the insight um, and the knowledge they need to really play baseball at a high level, um, I think that's crucial. And also just the player numbers in general. Um, We've got clubs popping up all over the country now. And... Yeah, just um, the facilities that we have. Um, I mean, Hamilton Raiders Field is probably the best in the country. And, um, yeah, it just keeps getting better and better. Um, Every week you hear hear about something new going on in the country, um, which is brilliant. And we've got a new CEO, and she's doing some really good things at the moment, which is um, great for the sport. Andrew Mark, lovely to have you on the program. Thank you, Wada. Andrew Mark, if you want to see Andrew Pinky Mark in action, Game 4 of the series between the Tuatara and the Adelaide Giants underway this afternoon, North Harbour Stadium at 3 o'clock. We'll preview that with Dale Budge around about 20 to 1 this afternoon. You can text us here on the programme, double eight double three. if you've got any thoughts on any sporting matter. You can find the programme on 800 150
Now thinking legendary care, think Somerset Retirement Villages, think new friends, new laughs and a new home, think Somerset Retirement Villages, do check them out, somerset.co.nz. Now the Cancer Society Longest Day Golf Challenge is on. You can register at longestday.org.nz. Rather be playing golf right now, grab your mates and register as longest at longestday.co.org.nz. Want to emphasise that great cause, the Cancer Society Longest Day Golf Challenge. Now, we seem to have played this interview a number of times, but the demand for it has been huge. Emails come in and people texting saying, can you replay the Legends Hour with the great runner Rod Dixon? An absolute icon. So we thought we'd do that. And the first question that I did ask Rod when we spoke to him, this is an interview that we also did with Grant Elliott, was when did he discover or find out or start to believe that perhaps he had some ability as a runner? Oh, I think I think by the time I had my first birthday, I think uh, when I was able to uh, get up and uh, race my dad around the table, I think, I think there was something there because my mother said... Um, he can't even catch me, but mind you, I was going under the table, so perhaps he didn't catch me. But no, I think, I think you know, during um, elementary school, um, you know, I loved rugby and I loved cricket and I loved uh, soccer and basketball, but really, um, I really had to wait for all the others to help me uh, get the ball. Uh, whereas with running, uh, when they said go, you went as fast as you could, uh, until the finish line, so that that um, that was really quite fascinating for me because it was all about me. And I remember at the Sunday school picnic. I think you got a um, a, a, a gold ribbon for first, and um, a green one for second, and a red one for third. And you know, I came home with about six or seven ribbons. And, and I think my parents realised then that I just loved to run. This kid was good. He just loved running. Rod, Mark Watson here. Um, you know, we played that moment from 1983, a defining moment in your career, but your career was a long one. A bronze medal 1972 in the 1500 metres. But I want to talk about the race, and I'm, I'm going to get you then to talk about it because you know exactly what I'm talking about. You run the fifth fastest time in history and you finished fourth. <laughs> yes. Yes, in fact, you know that, uh, Mark, there's a... Uh, tell, t- a firstly, book. tell everyone what race that was. That was 1974 at the Commonwealth Games in Christchurch, where uh, Philbert Bay from Tanzania set the world record. John Walker, New Zealand, uh, broke the old world record. Ben Gipcho from Kenya, he was equaled the, uh, the old world record. And then I was the fifth fastest time in history and finishing fourth. And it was just amazing because, as we all know, uh, I think you know, the best you can do is get a chocolate fish if you uh, if you finish fourth, um, but still pretty impressive. And still to this day, no race has ever, no runner has ever gone from the gun to the finish line to set the world record. They all have pacemakers now, but uh, and that was a very uh, inspiring race that showed to me that uh, just do the best you can be the best you can, and uh, learn by doing, learn from what you do, and that really set the uh, beginning of that pyramid for me to go on to do all the running and racing I did right through to 
Well, I, I did I did actually qualify for the 1988 Olympic Games in Seoul, but uh, the athletic people decided not to send. So anyway, that was that was all part of it. Rod, um, I listened to one of the the YouTube clips where you spoke about marathon running, and you spoke about how you go in with a set game plan, and then just as that game plan develops, you you work out whether you feel good or how you feel at the you know ten mile mark, twenty mile mark. But what what actually happens through your mind? You go in with a game plan, but do you wait till the final stages where you think, oh, I've got a little bit more reserve here, and that's where you push it on a bit? No, I think it, it was interesting because how you described, that is really for, you know, 800 metres, 1,500 metres, 5,000 metres. Yeah, that was, yeah. But the marathon presented a whole new uh, sphere of, of, of what it was. And I was, I was fascinated with... Um, uh, Dave McKenzie, who, who is the only New Zealander to ever win the Boston Marathon. Uh, Paul Ballinger, uh, who won the Fukuoka Marathon. Uh, Jack Foster, who was second in the uh, Commonwealth Games Marathon in Christchurch. All these runners I talked to and listened to and, and asked them about how they prepared. And so I was uh, very, very intent on getting a... Um, well, maybe a cross-section of how people felt and how these runners prepared. And then I realized, talking with my brother John, that we had to set my own plan. And what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses? And so we had to set the plan to the best of my ability. And that's why in those days I didn't have all this uh, telemetry and, and uh, watches and everything else. And I just basically wrote my my five mile, ten mile, fifteen, eighteen, and twenty three mile splits that I had to get, uh, aim for, and uh, and I and what I did is I I laid pretty well all of those uh, 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 points of the and I was right on schedule. So the further I went and the more ticks I got, the more confidence I got. And then really, I know I had no intention, even although I was a minute and a half behind the leader at 20, 23 miles, I still didn't try and catch him up. Uh, I stayed with my plan, stayed with my plan. And then, of course, uh, when I realized that what I was uh, achieving and I was closing in on him, and I think, you know, in that, in that uh, commentary, I talk about I ran the tangent of the course rather than um you know staying in the middle of the road and and i found that like like scott Dixon does when he races in indy uh that you've got to run the tangents and what i was doing was in fact saving myself from running that extra distance by staying in the middle of the road and uh slowly but surely i started to realize that I'm saving myself five, six, seven meters per corner. He's 10, 20 corners. And I'm saving myself nearly 200 meters, which is almost 30 seconds. Well, in fact, it was probably about 120 meters. So it was almost 15 to 20 seconds that I had saved myself from having to run. And, and, and that was the difference between him, me winning and him finishing second. Now, um, 
Uh, Rod, one of the things that um, I'm fascinated about is the the psychology of racing. Like in in cricket, if you're not thinking, then you're in a good headspace. What goes through your mind in a marathon? Is it a matter of blocking everything out and just concentrating on one step after the other? Uh, yes, because you know you've gone over the plan. You know, I mean, I, I fortunately, because uh, I was living in Pennsylvania at the time, uh, Fred LeBeau, who is the race director, creator of the New York City Marathon, he, he allowed me to come up and they took me around the course at about 4.35 o'clock in the morning. And I was able to look at the course, not only what I was running down, but also I looked out the back window to make sure that I could see whether there's highs or lows or... And so I, I really photographed in my own mind the course. And so that combined with the mile markers and everything else that I learned about that, how to run that, um, I then had a plan and I went over that plan time and time again. So that was embedded in my mind. So I really did know and have a plan, which really was something that I hadn't done previously in other races. I, I would just go out and, uh, and, and uh, adapt. But the, running the New York City Marathon, I had a plan, and I stayed with that plan, and, and that gave me the confidence as I started to tick off that it's working. Stay with it. Don't be influenced by others. Stay with that plan and stay on course and do what you're doing because what you're doing is right. Rod, it's well documented, and I've spoken to you a number of times about 1976 and the 5,000, you finishing fourth, and <coughs> the emotional scars of that, and then 1983, the New York City Marathon redemption, putting that to bed. When you cross that finish line in New York, you go down on your knees, you kiss the hallowed turf, and then you stand and look to the heavens, arms raised in a V. Was that as, was that as much about having won the race, but also getting that monkey off your back, taking 1976 and just putting it to bed? Take us through, yeah, the, take us through, take us through the emotion of what you were feeling. Yeah, well, you did pretty well, yeah, because, you know, life's journey presents us with so many different, uh, you know, twists and turns and highs and lows, and we've got to, uh, you know, learn from all that. And I think, you know, realising... And of course, you know, I was still chasing him up to 26 miles. I, I, hadn't, I only took the lead of the New York City Marathon at 26 miles with 385 yards to go. So, but what I, and I said in my commentary that I was actually running scared because I thought, what if he saved himself to now sprint past me to the finish? That I've spent all this energy catching him and he's just been waiting for me to catch him and then he's going to run me down. And so I knew, once I got past him, that I had to run to the finish line. Don't worry about him anymore. I did look back a couple of times. But once I crossed that finish line, I think all those, all my life experiences, all, you know, a thousand, a thousand images <laughs> in a second just threw at me. And I realized that this was my defining moment. This is what I had been through the lows of 74 Commonwealth Games, the lows of losing my shoes in 78, well, having my shoes stolen, actually, um, the, the boycott of the 1980 Olympics, the, the disappointment of, of, of not uh, performing when I really thought I was ready for performance, 
that all those moments all came that I realized, um, you know, as Sir Edmund Hillary, when he got to the top of Mount Everest, I knocked the bastard out. And it was almost like, I've done it, I've done it. This is the defining moment of me. And that's why the arms went up. I thanked the heavens. I kissed the ground and thanked the earth and the spirit of the earth. Um, and I thanked, you know, within my mind, uh, family, friends, and, and, and everything, the journey. Um, it was a spiritual journey, was not so much religious. It was a spiritual, very powerful moments. And so all those emotional moments just flooded out. And that really gave me my Mount Everest. I, I had reached the top of what I had been training for. But as I said, you know, a lot of people say, how long did it take to train for the New York City Marathon? I said, 33 years, because I was 33 years old. That was it. Oh, Rod, I, I can't imagine what sort of evening you would have had with all of those emotions. I mean, I, I can only think that you're exhausted after a marathon and it's very difficult to celebrate it. But what I do know is that <laughs> after winning the New York Marathon, Pan Am, and tell me if this is true, they put your name on the side of one of their 747s and gave you a self-right <laughs> ticket for first class. <laughs> exactly. Well, of course, you know, uh, the media straight after, uh, uh, Jim McKay and, and, and the team were all interviewing me. Uh, Rune Arnich, who is head of ABC Sports for 25 years, he actually called me personally and thanked me. He said that was one of the defining moments of his 25 years as head of ABC Sports. Um, and then I went to Tavern on the Green. And uh, uh, one of the uh, head people at Pan Am's brother owned Tavern on the Green, and there was cases of champagne for everybody. And really, it was a journey. And of course, and then the next morning, I was on Good Morning America. Uh, and then that afternoon, we went to the White House and met President Reagan. Uh, so it was just this incredible journey of um, acknowledgement by people. And, and, and I think... You know, if this had happened earlier in my life, I don't know what would have, I would have, whether I've been so determined. It, ha it happened at a time where it was incredible. And as you say, um, I remember Pan Am uh, had me at the uh, at their building and uh, they announced that they were uh, naming a 747, uh, the Clipper Rod Dixon. Um, and that was going to be flying from New York to Los Angeles to Auckland to, to Sydney. And, um, and, and, and they gave me a, a, a card which I could go and self-write a ticket anywhere in the world. It was just <laughs> incredible. And I'm reliving that right now. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Oh, where, where, one, one thing is, where was your first destination, destination for your self-write ticket? And also, I mean, marathon run, runners must be the cheapest dates ever after a marathon. One glass of champagne and you'd be finished, wouldn't you? <laughs> I know. I know. I was. I, I think I was pretty uh, lightheaded and light-footed, and uh, but I just went with the flow. And I remember great, great friends on First Avenue, Wilson's uh, Bar, where we used to go, and they uh, they always had New Zealand beers, and we went there. And I think we closed the place at about 3 a.m. in the morning, so it was pretty full-on. Uh, amazing. 
Uh, and a lot of those people I've stayed in touch with. We've, we still communicate, and thanks for social media, we were able to uh, relive those moments. But it was just incredible and, and just just um, yeah, absolutely amazing. Now, the first the first flight that I actually had was um, from uh, from New York, and I went to um, to London. Um, and to to see my great friend Dave Bedford, who became the race director of the uh, London Marathon, recreated the whole London Marathon, and uh, and I remember, you know, because we went back to 1973 when I won the English Cross Country Championship, beating him, and he was at that time the world uh, cross country champion. So uh, those friendships have meant so much to me, and uh, and it, they continue, and that's. That's one gift that I give back to the sport, and that's why I do what I do with the kids, to inspire them and to encourage kids to believe in themselves and do the best that they can be. And, uh, and of course, our mantra is finishing is winning. Finishing is winning. Winning is finishing. And um, it's, it's all about the hare and the tortoise. As the kids know, the tortoise wins the race. Slow and steady wins the race. So that's, that's what I grew up with. That's what I, I was inspired with. And that's what I want to inspire the next generation. And, and I think um, you'll just see that uh, Sir Edmund Hillary was my patron uh, for my kids' program because he, he believed in what I was doing and was, and was uh, very supportive of what I was doing. And so what an incredible journey. Rod, you're such an inspiring person. And it's so refreshing to hear someone who's not only the sports given so much to, but to hear you giving it back to you know the community and kids that are passionate about the sport i mean one of the things that we hear quite often is we hear about don't specialize but you know i don't i feel like if you've got a passion for the sport why not specialize i i loved cricket from the age of 12 and all i wanted to do was play cricket seven days a week um and fantastic to hear you inspiring young kids are there any up-and-coming young kids that you've been working with that you think are going to be something special in the future uh well my my thing of course is is uh my program or my foundation focuses on what we call k-3-5 so that's kindergarten to age 12 and um so it's it's abc it's simple you know kids i said what are the first first three letters of the alphabet abc Agility, balance, and coordination. And those are the skills we put into kids where, as I say, finishing is winning, uh, 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 winning is finishing. We get the kids to participate rather than specialize. We, I know that by the time they go to high school or what we call middle school or element, um, intermediate and high school, that they will, they will meet coaches who will be able to um, uh, have the kids uh, specialize a little bit more in those given what what you know you, you ask a kid what's your favorite sport and they will tell you but my thing is is have them uh, um, uh, participate in as many uh, activities as they can uh, if parents say to me uh, I don't know what to buy my kids uh, you know one wants to buy I said buy them a trampoline get them a trampoline get the family a trampoline because once those kids learn the confidence to be jumping, to be backflipping, to be doing all sorts, then they get that confidence and then they start to realize, I'm a, I mean, my grandkids play cricket. My grandkids play soccer. 
basketball. They're all very good. But now as they start to get into that teenager, they are starting to focus. And I can see that journey has, is uh, starting to flow into them. So my thing is, get uh, leave no kid left behind. Every kid in school, participate in something. And, you know, the daily run has become a very popular thing for the for the teachers and the schools uh, just to get the kids out and all run a lap, run a few laps. Um, and, you know, in that recess, get them out there and have a run round. Don't let them sit down and and keep quiet. That's, they're not born to do that. So, And it's amazing how those kids then become uh, engaged in um, what we call athleticism, and then they start to realize that this is what they want to do as they go on. So it's, it's a, yeah, as my thing is, no kid left behind. Get them all moving. Get up and move. Rod Dixon, you are an inspiration. Lovely to have you on the program. Thank you. The icon, the legend, the man, the great Rod Dixon. Bronze medal 1972 in the 1500 New York Marathon, win a third at the World Cross Country Championships. Uh, I do encourage people, get on YouTube, watch 1983 New York Marathon, arguably the greatest marathon ever run. It is 14 minutes away from 12 o'clock. After 12 o'clock, we are going to talk some hockey here on the programme. Looking forward to that. Going to catch up with Aidan Sarakea, a member of the New Zealand Black Sticks. Um, but we're also going to preview some baseball. Tuatara back in action. Game four of their four-game series against the Adelaide Giants. Set to go North Harbour Stadium at three o'clock. Mixed bag so far for the Auckland Tuatara. Not playing their best baseball. Bounced back last night with a very good victory. Dale Budge will provide a little bit more insight into how this team is progressing. It's a short season, just 40 regular season games before we do head into the playoffs. Just want to acknowledge too, Vantage Windows and Doors, right behind the Vantage Blackstick, so they'll bring us that interview after 12 o'clock. Ben Francis is producing. Ben is Mr Darts, and one thing that Darts has done very well is they know how to position their Blue Ribbon event, the World Championships. Make sure it happens on New Year's Day, New Year's Eve, over the Christmas period, when there's not a lot of other sport on. Ben, what's the latest? Yeah, so we got our quarterfinalists officially confirmed now. We just had the last of the games uh, today. So it's really, really exciting getting down to the real business end of the tournament. So 96 players started and just eight remain. Uh, so we've got Dimitri Vandenberg, Johnny Clayton, Michael Smith, Stephen Bunting, Gerwin Price, Gabrielle Clements, Michael Van Gerwen and Chris Dobie. Uh, so Michael Van Gerwen, the huge favourite going into the last eight. Chris Dobie, Gabrielle Clements uh, uh, through to the quarterfinal stage for the first time of their career, which is good, and so is Johnny Clayton. So Any major upsets? Oh, there have been major upsets throughout the thing. Gabrielle Clements is he's the first German player through to the last eight, and he's the lowest-ranked seed still left in the tournament. Uh, I'd say the biggest upset from today's games would have been Chris Dobie be- beating Rob Cross, who won the world title a few years back. Uh, do we have the draw for the top 16? Uh, yeah, so the top 16's just gone, so that was the draw there just for the last right. eight. So Dimitri faces Johnny, Michael Smith, Stephen Bunting, then Gerwin Price, Gabrielle Clements, Michael Van Gerwen, and Chris Dobie. Okay, who are you picking? Oh, it's very hard to go past Michael Van Gerwen, and you don't like being okay. that guy. But And what about from those other quarterfinals then, or from those other top 16 games? If you want me to make my picks yep. from who will win, I'd say Dimitri, Michael, Gerwin, and Michael Van Gerwen will, will win those games. There you go. Plenty of darts.
We'll keep you updated on the world darts over the next few days here on SENZ. If you have just joined us, I can tell you earlier today, West Ham getting beaten by Brentford by two goals to nil. Liverpool got up over Leicester City by two goals to one. It is 11 minutes away from midday. Hockey segment coming up after 12 o'clock, courtesy of Vantage Windows and Doors, right behind the Vantage Black Sticks. If you've got any thoughts, you can text us here on the Temper and Bed Post on the Temper text machine. Also, just want to get your thoughts on 0800 150 Between 12 and 1, just on what are now the King's Honours Awards, or the New Year's Honours list. So Dame Farah Palmer becomes the first female rugby player to be knighted. Other sports people who picked up the New Zealand Order of Merit include Olympic gold medalist Zoe Sadowski-Sinnott, Nico Porteous, netball legend Lee Gibbs, Squash champion Paul Cole, Olympic rowing superstars Hamish Bond and Eric Murray. Um, struggle always the fact that rugby just seems to always get the top gongs here. And it's a sensitive subject, but I'm going to say this. I think there's too much virtue signalling now when it comes to awards. I think there's too much political correctness. I think there's a level of wokeism in and around the way the awards are handed out, being seen to be doing the right thing. I've got no problem with people picking up awards, but let's just make sure we're consistent. Now, where's Daniel Loder's knighthood? Where is Duncan Lang's knighthood for coaching? Where is Gordon Walker's knighthood for coaching Lisa Carrington? Wouldn't mind having that discussion between 12 and 1 and getting your thoughts. Coming up to four minutes away from 1, we talk hockey, we talk baseball, we open the lines between 12 and 1 here on SENZ. 12 o'clock, you're listening to SENZ. Mark Watson with you. The telephone number is 0800 150 811. You can text us here on 8833. We'll talk some baseball a little bit later on in the programme. Tuatara in action. Game four of their series against the Adelaide Giants set to go at North Harbour Stadium this afternoon at 3 o'clock. We will open the lines too. I want to get your thoughts too just on the King's Honours or the Queen's Honours or the New Year's Honours list, always sports people being recognised. I guess it just frustrates me that some people are recognised and yet other people with equal achievements from yesteryear or possibly even greater achievements haven't been recognised. I guess it's subjective. People do need to be dominated and the paperwork does need to be filled out. But what is the criteria? Who are some of those people that have perhaps been a little bit unlucky? Players such as maybe Winton Roofer in football. Has he received the recognition that perhaps he deserves? And how do you recognise people like Chris Wood? How do you recognise people like Stephen Adams, who play in arguably in two of the biggest leagues in the world where to get to the top is certainly a lot harder. It was almost in another universe, say, compared to other sports. You can text your thoughts too here on double eight double three as well. Now, Vantage Windows and Doors, right behind the Vantage Black Sticks. Vantage Windows and Doors bring us this next segment because the Hockey World Cup is about to get underway in India. It starts on January 13th and goes through to the 29th of January. A member of the Men's Black Sticks joins us on the programme, Aidan Sarakea. Afternoon to you, Aidan. Welcome. 
I think my reception's not too bad. It, w- w- you got me there? Yeah, yeah. Whereabouts are you at the moment? Are you yeah, here no. in New Zealand or are you in Belgium? Uh, yeah, no, in Whangamata. Oh, Whangamata. Nice. Doing a bit of surfing? Uh, I'd like to say yes, but no, I'm not good. Sarah Kaya, uh, Aiden. Sarah Kaya. Uh, what? What are? You, what? What are the origins? Uh, uh, my dad's Turkish. All his side of the family's from there. I get asked that quite a lot, and people guess that yeah, Turkish. Okay. Uh, so I, I can't imagine field hockey big in Turkey. Uh, I think it's up and coming. Yeah. Close to the um, close to Europe, and I'm not sure how often their players get out and play over there, but. Oh, yeah, I'd like to think it's up and coming. Yeah, yeah. Where did, played against them. Where did you grow up and learn your hockey, Aiden? I uh, grew up in Nartia, just down the road from here. And, um, yeah, learned on a little turf there. Yeah, well done. Yeah, everyone, I think everyone you've driven through Nartia. I'm not sure that you associate it necessarily with hockey. Mind you, I probably don't think you associate it with sports. So with many kids playing yeah. hockey in Nartia? Yeah, yeah. There's um, from all the Thames Valley, um, they sort of congregate there. We've had some guys um, come through and pave the way. Lloyd Stevenson, Ricky Clark, some local heroes that I definitely look up to when I was growing up. That um, went on. Lloyd went on to play um, over 100 games. So yeah, some guys coming out of there. So at a regional hockey level in the country, that comes under Midlands, does it? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, so just what? Yeah, again, you, I think you've emphasised Thames Valley there. Does it go beyond Thames Valley? What, what? What region makes up Midlands? Uh, it goes as north as counties, and then as south as the as Taupo. So um, makes up uh, Tauranga, Waikato, Thames Valley, Bay of Plenty, and um, counties as well. Mm. Were you from a young age always destined to be an, a national New Zealand hockey rep? Were you did, were you a, a kid with X Factor from a young age? Uh, it's hard to tell. <laughs> Coming from a Smaller place, yeah, yeah. With with not as many kids playing, maybe uh, I'll learn a few different skills. And I was lucky to have some pretty good coaches that set me on the right track. And ended up over at Hamilton Boys um, with some more good coaching and stuff. And a couple of the players through there look up to as well. So I don't want to say lucky, but I definitely had people around me to help me out. Yeah. So moving and playing at Hamilton Boys High School was that a defining moment? Was that that was that that um, what's the word is was that that level and tier of hockey that you needed to take that next step? Yeah, I think so. Um, with Lloyd actually coaching us here as well, and then we had five or six guys um, came through school and ended up playing for New Zealand. So a good group of us that all trained pretty hard, and we were lucky. Um, the, ex- the captain now of the the Black Six, Nick Woods, is there, and he he pulled us all through and yeah, learned a lot, of, a lot of him and a lot of the coaches as well. Mm. And what was the first national team you made? Uh, I made a New Zealand under-18 team that travelled to Aussie in 2014 or 2015, maybe. So I was the first taste of it, playing against an Aussie under-18 team and then the um, Queensland under-21s as well. Yeah, and was that a pretty special moment for you? Yeah, yeah, that was cool. It was the first chance to represent the country and um, it, it definitely ignited, again, the, the passion and wanted to keep carrying on and... Um, yeah, make the national team. Yeah, and then you made the New Zealand under-21 team back in 2016, so that natural progression. Yeah, yeah. There was a, there was sort of the pathway then. was um, I, I just a little bit too young for the New Zealand under-16 program, but 
my pathway was the under-18s and then under-21s and then on to the national team. Mm-hmm. Okay, tell us about the day you got the call-up for the New Zealand team. Where were you? How did you find out? Uh, I was I was in Hamilton. Um, I remember it's something I've been working towards for a while and it's yeah pretty surreal to, to get the call. And I remember calling mum straight away. So that was a pretty proud moment for me, pretty proud, proud moment for, for her as well. Mm-hmm. Your mum a big, big, big supporter? Yeah, number one supporter. Yeah, yeah. She's um, yeah, helped me along the whole way and um, wouldn't have been able to do it without her as well. So mm. big props to her. And in regards to your first senior national team, uh, you made your debut. It was the International Festival of Hockey in Victoria, Australia. Tell us a little bit about that tournament. Uh, we played a two-game series against Aussie in, in Bendigo just before that, uh, 28th of November in 2017. Unfortunately, um, mum couldn't come over for that, but it was uh, yeah. as a young player playing for the national team for the first time, it was just such a cool experience. And I, I can't remember if I shed a tear during the anthem, but I, I know it was pretty emotional and just all the hard work had come to a point and I was, yeah, just so happy. Mm. You keep your shirt, you got it framed? I do, actually, yeah. Good on you. No, good on you. I, I genuinely yeah. mean that. I mean, you do work hard for it. It's like a university degree, isn't it? Sometimes you've just got to remind yourself yeah. of all the sacrifice, particularly on those bad days. Have a look at it and go, actually, I'm not too bad. Yeah, all the training days are worth it in the end. Yeah. And then in 2018, yeah. you, you got to the Commonwealth Games. I mean, imagine that's another level. And men's team ended up winning a silver medal. What was the Commonwealth Games experience like? Uh, I'd, I'd only played um, 10 games leading up to it, so I was still pretty fresh and um, maybe a little bit naive um, going into a major tournament that quick. But I yeah, just took the opportunity and um, it was just cool being around the village and seeing other athletes of just of such a high caliber was just a great learning experience. And then to come out with silver as well was pretty surreal. Mm. Where, where so, is um, that? Where probably, is? Sorry, I've got it here with me in Fongmata. I lives at home. Oh, the, the, so, silver, yeah. the, the silver medal. Yeah, <laughs> you got that. You got that yeah. framed up on a wall, or is that just in a safe somewhere? Uh, we've got a cool little box um, that we got given, and a little koala as well that came with it, so that's all stored away for a rainy day. Mm. And you, you, you know, you've gone on, and I think you may have played forty five, forty six appearances now for the Black Sticks. Are you still excited every time you put that shirt on? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We're um, a pretty isolated part of the world down here, and recently we've had the chance with Pro League for the top European nations to come out and play, and playing in front of a home crowd's awesome. Um, with the World Cup coming up, playing in front of the Indian crowd's cool as well. So, um, yeah, every every time we play is special, and we get reminded of that by guys in the team and guys that have come before us as well. So it's just such an awesome opportunity and I still love it. It's interesting because you think about hockey, you think about it being sweltering, but what you're heading up there for an Indian winter and it can actually be quite cool in India this time of year. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. We've been um, rostered on for middle-of-the-day games. So 1pm over there, hopefully it's not too hot. We were there in, in October for Pro League and uh, we played 7 o'clock at night and it was cool then, so hopefully it's still like that during the middle of the day. Mm, okay, um, and do we know what teams New Zealand will be playing? Yeah, we played Chile, um, Holland and Malaysia in pool play and three of those four teams go through so we'll be looking to looking to win the pool 
mm. and head through to a quarterfinal. Yeah, Netherlands won't be easy, but I'd expect that you'd expect to beat Chile. And whereabouts is Malaysian hockey at the moment? Uh, Malaysia around us, 9 or 10. Um, we haven't seen uh, too much of them lately, but they're always a really skillful and fast side. And mm. they've got some of the older players have come back and they'll, mm. they'll be challenging, but I think. We've got some good things brewing and we're definitely up for it. In rugby, they often talk about the Northern Hemisphere style and the Southern Hemisphere style. How many different styles of hockey are there at an international level? Um, and what sort of style do we play, say, versus, say, perhaps what the Dutch do? Yeah, it's interesting. I think every every country plays uh, a different way. And at the moment, um, there's a lot of teams innovating and trying new things. And the European teams are even a lot different so the Dutch play quite quick um, give and go hockey and they've got fast aggressive um, counter attack and um, we've got a mixture of that and then a mixture of um, we've got some talented guys some quick guys but also mm. some experienced and guys that know how to slow the game down a little bit and a bit more calculated so we're a good mix of that and then our own brand mm. as well yeah, and we I said... think going into the sorry no sorry go on I think we're, we've got quite a good underdog ment- mentality going into this tournament, and um, yeah, we're um, feeling pretty good for it. Where, where's India's hockey at? I mean, they were once one of the great traditional powerhouses, but it tends to be a sport dominated a little bit more by the Europeans and the Australians. Uh, Indian hockey, what are their expectations as the host nation? I think they'll be they'll be liking their odds. Um, always a, a home tournament for them. It's awesome. The crowd gets behind them, and it it can turn a bit wavy. And they've got some fast and skillful guys. So mm. I think they'll be they'll be yeah liking their odds. Mm. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I long long time ago at Manawatu Grammar School played a little bit of first eleven hockey, but it was it was before the four fifteen minute quarters that they now have. Did you sort of play yeah. under the old format? And how? And if you did, how much of a change was it going to the four by fifteen minute periods? Yeah, I played a little bit of um, club hockey with a thirty minute halves, thirty five minute halves, and it's kind of like the difference between one day cricket and T Twenty. It's um, the fifteen minutes a little bit more fast paced, and you get the two minute rest at the quarter time. So it's a lot more explosive. I think it'd be a lot better to watch. Um, than the the old half of hockey. Yeah, you got to do. It. You, you guys got to be incredibly fit, man. It is a tough, tough sport, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We do quite a bit of conditioning, and I think the the heat is a massive factor as well. The guys that went to Tokyo um, found that out. The um, like playing in heat just makes it so much harder. So there are conditioning stuff we do to sort of counter that. But like you said, hopefully it's a bit cooler in India, and that doesn't come into it. Mm. And you'll say play professionally in Belgium. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the professional hockey circuit in the in Europe. Yeah, I'm, I'm playing in Germany. Oh, Germany um, now. My apologies. 2019. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we've got four guys, or oh, five guys at the same club in Hamburg, and then there's um, I think there's maybe twelve or thirteen players out of the squad that are in, in clubs in Europe, and it's uh, such it's just such a good uh, supplement for our national program as well, having guys playing in the best leagues in the world and coming up against the best players in the world week in, week out. And it, it just brings a bit more um, pressure onto your training environment and having to play well on Sundays. And I think it's maybe something we don't get enough of down here, the, the week in, week out um, pressure of a club competition. And so it's, it's, 
invaluable for guys being over there, I think, and yeah, being able to play with that pressure and then thrive. And all of those games over there, are they televised? Is it is it is it got a good following? Yeah, they get they get good good numbers down to the games, and um, I know in Germany they've got uh, it might be through YouTube, but there are streaming services as well that they have to be able to watch. Yeah. And can you make a living out of it, or is it just more about experience and not actually ultimately costing you anything? Uh, depends where you go, but it's not it's not like a rugby contract or a football contract. Um, we're still studying or working part time, um, but it's enough to get by over there, and it's it's a lot about the experience. How does your mum cope without you? Yeah, <laughs> uh, she misses me. I actually got homesick for the first time been over there um for this half of the season so it's good to be back now yeah, yeah. and you're yeah. based and you're based in Wangamata permanently are you between between Auckland and here the um national program's just gone regional and so it gives guys the opportunity to be in Auckland if they want to but also is bolstering the the growth of hockey outside of Auckland so yeah. um I'll be I'll be based between Auckland and Wangamata yeah. when I'm back Hopefully a little bit more over here when the sun's out. Yeah, and how many caps have you played for New Zealand? Uh, I, I, around sixty. So you're you're up yeah, to sixty. I, I mean, it's unbelievable how many Test caps hockey players play in comparison to say rugby and football. Uh, are you considered a senior member of the team when you've played sixty, or have you got to play like a hundred and fifty to sort of get that recognition? We had a, a few guys um, stop after Tokyo, so. I think the highest cap player now is Simon Childs come back and he's he's over 200. Wow. Lee Tarrant's over 200 games. Um, we've got guys in the 150s and closing in on 200 as well. So there's a... And we've also got um, Charlie Morrison who's going to debut over at the World Cup. So we've got a good mixture of experience and um, young talent coming through. Now, are you predominantly a defender or a midfielder? Uh, midfielder. And so you play refs, left side, right side, middle of the park? Uh, middle of the park, try to hold it down. So, yeah. so you pretty much control things. You're the pivot. You're the man they go through, Aiden. Uh, yep, yep. Between, um, yeah, through the, through the middle of the field, we've got um, some guys that are pretty crafty. So, yeah, <laughs> we've also got guys on the outside that are good as well. So, a team that can go anywhere, I think. So, you as playing as a sort of central midfielder, are you expected to be a very good little dribbler? Are you expected to be very good with ball at stick, or is it more about just distribution and passing? I think for me, I haven't got the speed on me, haven't got the wheels. So, uh, my game is more about trap and pass and try to get the guys around me going that are they've got the flair and the speed. Sean Finlay, Hayden, Sean Finlay, Hayden Phillips in front of me, you've got the wheels and the yeah, get those guys going. And you're comfortable with the combinations? You feel confident with this New Zealand team heading to these world champs? Yeah, I think we've got such a good mixture of young guys that are just raw and have got such good talent and then experience that it's a really good mix and I'm I'm really hopeful for this major. Now, you've clearly come on here and you've acknowledged your mother, which is great. Anybody else you'd like to thank? Any sponsors? Here's your opportunity, big guy. Yeah, thanks to um, Vantage Windows and Doors, seriously. Yeah, our major sponsor. And then um, Grace Hockey, my personal sponsor as well. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of others that I'm missing. But yeah, it takes a 
takes a village to get all of us going. So all the guys I know are really grateful for their personal sponsors mm. and I'm grateful for mine as well. And when, when does the team leave New Zealand? Uh, we fly on the morning of the 5th. So, so, so you've, yeah, got about, you've got about six or seven days to climatise and get used to things and get yourself settled in? Yeah, yeah. We, um, we're moving between two cities. The tournaments play between Rua and Bubaneshwa, so um, a little bit of travel, but that's right. Well, Aidan Sarakea, lovely to have you on the programme. Um, wonderful insight. Congratulations on your career to this point, and all the very best with the upcoming World Championships. Thanks, mate. Thanks a lot. Cheers for having me on. No, you're welcome. Hockey brought to you by Vantage Windows and Doors, right behind the Vantage Black Six. Black Sticks on their journey to the FIH Hockey Men's World Cup, again courtesy Advantage Windows and Doors. And I just want to emphasise that if you um, see Vantage Windows and Doors, it's part of, they're a brand that have presented themselves or you're looking into them because they provide a product that you might be looking into, please do go with those companies that support this radio station, that support our sports teams around the country. They do make a big difference. 20 minutes after 12, you listen to SENZ. 24 and a half minutes after 12, 3 o'clock this afternoon. Get yourself to North Harbour Stadium if you live in the Auckland, Greater Auckland region because the Auckland Tuatara baseball team take on the Adelaide Giants in Game 4. The Giants lead the series by two games to one. The Adelaide Giants currently lead the southwestern division of the Australian Baseball League. The Auckland Tuatara currently sit second in the northeastern division of the competition. Yesterday, they were beaten badly by the Adelaide Giants, 14 runs to one. They look like the worst team in the league. They bounced back last night with a magnificent win, five runs to two. Previewing this afternoon's game and to reflect on the series so far is Mr Baseball, Dale Budge. Um, afternoon to you, Dale. Welcome. Yeah, good, thank you. Sorry, we've got you there. We just had a, a slight technical issue. Uh, OK, contrasting fortunes <laughs> for the Tuatara. Uh, Friday night, this team looked, uh, well, not at their best, not hitting well. Yesterday afternoon, probably the worst performance of the season. Bounced back last night magnificently. Your take on the series so far? Oh, I think your assessment's pretty well spot on. Look, they were competitive Friday, uh, Thursday night, excuse me, but still nowhere near their best, nowhere near where they'd been earlier in the season. The offense just not clicking, not firing on all cylinders at the moment. And so they've got themselves into a position where they might have been able to, to snatch a game, as they have done at times during the season, uh, maybe when they didn't deserve it necessarily, but um, weren't ultimately able to, to close that one out. Turned up yesterday, and the, the body language just didn't look good from the get-go. You know, it is, it is a, it's a grind. You know, you talk about baseball being a grind. It's day in and day out. It's hot work and the sapping energy, um, you know, that the, the weather sort of... Uh, uh, delivers at this time of year in Auckland. Um, none of those are excuses. They're all things that you have to be able to overcome. That's what being a professional baseball player is all about. And the Adelaide Giants did it perfectly. The Tuatara couldn't. And um, they needed something to give them that shot in the arm uh, to, to sort of lift the spirits, get them out of the funk that they'd been in. And, and they got it from sort of an unlikely source. Uh, Tui Amosa, young development player who made a terrific... Uh, defensive play in the outfield to, to stop the Adelaide Giants from, from taking on any more runs and then uh, came up with a, you know, a a base hit, a couple of uh, stolen bases to get the crowd energised into it and then Wyatt Hoffman a three run home run uh, you know his his offence has been limited so far this season by his standards, you know not, not probably known for his offence, he's more of a defensive first 
second baseman, but he hit one out over the teal monster that absolutely sent the place, uh, you know, into uh, raptures last night. And you could see it had a, a massive impact on the team already, a bounce in their step and, you know, talking to players today, uh, totally different mindset to where they were 24 hours ago. And it's a funny it's a funny sport, isn't it, baseball? You can go from your absolute worst to your absolute best in the um, blink of an eye in, in this sport. So, yeah, big job ahead today. Adelaide are a very good side. Um, they have played consistent baseball all weekend and, uh, an opportunity to split the series, which would be a, a pretty good result, I think, overall. I think the Tuatara, had they been offered that at the start of the weekend, they probably would have taken it against um, the Southwest leaders and given where the Tuatara have been. So plenty of work to do this afternoon behind uh, Toru Marata. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about um, Wyatt Hoffman. You mentioned the home run, that he is very much a defensive infield, or not knowing maybe for his offence, but he has an interesting background. His father a legend in baseball in the United States in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah, Trevor Hoffman, of course, the great closer for the San Diego Padres for a very long time, through some of their best, um, you know, best years in the in the 90s. I think they went to, um, you know, uh, sort of playoff caliber team along the lines of Tony Gwynn and and uh, and Hoffman himself, um, the stars of, of, of that side. And, you know, he's grown up, White's grown up around the sport. He's, you know spent plenty of time in major league um, clubhouses and, and, and bullpens over the years, you know, with his father and, and learnt the game. And, yeah, he's a big personality. I don't know whether baseball is something that's been thrust upon him or not, but he is a big personality. He's quite the character in, in the clubhouse. As I said he gives the team energy. And um, it's not the first time this year that his offense has, has led to, you know, giving the Tuatara a shot in the arm that they needed. So, um, yeah, not overly surprised, I guess, that, that he was the guy that came up with the big play. Just... Maybe a little surprise the manner in which he did hitting one over the teal monster, which no one's been able to do so far this season. Yeah, so you mentioned Murata on the mound today for the Tuatara. Tell us a little bit about him and why we should go in with an element and degree of confidence. Oh, I think Murata's been the best pitcher for the Tuatara this season. Um, he's been the, the lockdown Sunday starter. Uh, I think his ERA on the season is, is well under one, which is which is uh, you know absolutely world class. Spent a number of years um, playing in the MPB in Japan as a, as a major league player. Went to the United States, uh, played for what were known now as the Cleveland Guardians, the Cleveland Indians when he played for them in the mid-20-teens. Um, yeah, has a, has a serious arsenal. He's got about six different pitches that he can throw, so uh, we'll mix that up. He's, he's proven at this level to be a very effective starting pitcher. We'll probably mix in one or two of those uh, those uh, pitches. Second time through the order might not show his full hand first time through and then as he sees guys for the second time you start to mix in a, a different curveball or a you know one of his change up pitches that he uses um yeah he, he has been a, a bright light for the tuatara all season and you know, expect that he'll deliver again today in front of a, a crowd that'll be desperate to see a little bit of this momentum continue down how good was wei chun wing last night on the mound the taiwanese sensation yeah look if murata has been the, the standout pitcher, Wing has been a, a pretty close second to Wing has, has I think he's proved a 4-1 on the season um, you know, so he's had more wins than any other pitcher for the Tuatara this year uh, has just gone about his business he's not as flashy, probably doesn't have as many highlight real punch outs as, as Murata does um, but he has been extremely effective uh, out of the uh, Monkeys organisation the Ruckerton Monkeys who will be here in attendance this afternoon uh, watching and um yeah, he's been a real shining light for, for the Tuatara. Hasn't always had the uh, the way that, that Minty's used the bullpen. We've seen the two San Diego Padres prospects, um, you know, 
used on days that Murata has pitched. Wing necessarily hasn't had that assistance coming behind him, so he's had to sort of put in the hard work and uh, be relied on to, to go deep into games, and, and he's done that and did it again last night. Terrific fashion. There are a couple of times where we saw pitches warming up, and he thought, oh, you know, he's done his job, and he might bring him out now, but the pitch count, he kept that pretty low. He was pretty economical um, in that regard and able to go the distance last night, which is an absolute godsend when you, you, know, you think you've got, now got plenty of options Mincy he has at his disposal today out of the bullpen. Yeah, and last night, the nation of Taiwan very much dedicated the evening to them and a number of Taiwanese players that run through this Tuatara starting lineup, the likes of Shu Wei Lin. Um, how important is it getting buy-in from the Asian population here in New Zealand? Because it is a big sport in a lot of the Asian countries. In fact, in a lot of countries, it's their national sport. 100% it's a national sport in Taiwan. Um, look, it's, it's part of the important we've got it. That, the, the great thing is the Taiwanese community have been absolutely brilliant in terms of supporting this team, uh, not just uh, turning up and, and cheering from the stands, but some of the stuff they've done behind the scenes. You know, there's uh, a house that's been rented, the Taiwanese community is supported there, Taiwanese players all together in a house. Uh, and I remember the Taiwanese business community have been taking them out to dinners and, um, you know, spending the, the holiday season looking after those players, cars and, and whatnot, just to help make life a little bit easier as you transition into a, a brand new city where, you know, language barrier is a, a, a little bit of an issue at times for some of the players. Um, they've been great. You know, it's been a, you know, it really does feel like um, a, a part of our team and um, there's, there's an awful lot of sport. One might argue there's actually more sport in Taiwan in many regards than there is here in New Zealand for, you know, from, from a commercial standpoint. So, um, yeah, we, we really appreciate the Taiwanese community and, and what they're doing. There are 500 or so of them in attendance last night, all dressed out in the Tuatara Taiwanese shirts and banging the drums, singing and chanting. It was great. It was a wonderful atmosphere to be part of. And, um, yeah, hopefully we'll see more of them throughout the course of the season. You mentioned the young South Auckland talent Tui Amosa getting a start last night and the impact that he had on the game. But what's pleasing to see is the New Zealand players that are starting to establish themselves in the Australian Baseball League, starting to establish themselves in this Tuatara lineup. Clayton Campbell Jr., we've got Jason Matthews, you mentioned Tui Amosa. Earlier today on our Legends Hour, we had Andrew Mark. That's got to be pleasing for the sport in this country, providing that pathway. Is to um, you know become a second, maybe even first tier sport in the in the coming years. It's going to need help here. It's going to need the local community to to grow. The local games get bigger and better. The umpires, scorers, coaches, everyone playing their part, and that's what the Tuatara have, was set up to to do. Now you're not going to get that just by handing opportunities out willy nilly if players aren't up to it. It's about you know baseball is about grinding. It's about working hard and getting a result. And so. To see someone like Tui Amosa, who really, when the Tuatara came about, he was a number of years away from from being able to play. He was still in his early teens, but you know he's continued to develop over the last few years. There are other sports. He was a very talented rugby league player. Comes from a, a family that you know has has ties to, to rugby league, to American football. His dad was a pretty handy American football player. Um, he stuck with it. He's worked his backside off sometimes without you know without the success that we think he might have deserved in, in you know, in terms of rep teams and whatnot. Um, you know, he's, he's taken this opportunity he's done everything we've asked him to do from communication to just his general preparation he's prepared as if he's a fully fledged professional player and it's great to see him sort of coming of age last night um, you know, I, I know that Lindsay's already looking ahead to the playoffs and whether you know, he might have a role to play for Tuatara in the playoffs 
um, you know, it's, it's been a, a real success story. And there's got to be more like it. You know, behind him, there's another group of kids that are 15, 16 that are sitting there watching in the stands or watching at home on TV, listening to your commentary last night. That are probably inspired. They want to be out there. So you know, McLean Roberts got his opportunity uh, in the early game, albeit this blowout. But you know, Rob, there was a great story in the clubhouse talking to some of the players and the coaching staff afterwards. And Robbie Price going out just to check on his picture and you know, saying, "Yeah, everything's all right. Settle down. You're, you're in a, um, you know, you, you, there's no pressure on you here. You just got to drive with the ball in the strike zone." And McLean saying, "I'm good. I just, it just seems so weird." So. Um, out of the realm of norm to be standing here as a professional player pitching in front of a whole bunch of people in the stands and yeah it's a neat experience he'll take a lot from that he'll go back to his, his club and relay that experience talk about the things he's learned from Robbie Price and the other pitchers um, while he's been to Matata this year and that'll help grow the game here so that the club uh, game continues to improve as well Okay Dale what time do the gates open this afternoon? Uh, we open from 2 o'clock so uh, get out early you can choose your seats you basically sit anywhere you like uh, remember if you catch a, a home run at Tuatara Stadium you get a year's supply of sales pizza so there's been some home runs that are ready to the series so opportunity to sit on the grass at Bankman on a nice warm um, sunny afternoon and uh, if you want to have shade and sit up in the grandstand and get the bird's eye view there's the opportunity to do that too so um, yeah, it should be a cricket game Tuatara got their best picture going they've got some plenty of help in the bullpen and uh, they're up against a very very competitive and quality side in the Adelaide Giants so Great way to uh, finish off 2022. Yeah, Dale Budge, thank you for your time on the programme. Auckland Tuatara in action, 3 o'clock this afternoon. If you can't get along this afternoon, four-game series coming up against the Canberra Cavalry later in the week, Friday night, two games on Saturday, 3 o'clock and 7, and then another game on Sunday. So plenty of live baseball to look forward to. It's an incredibly high standard. A lot of players affiliated with the major league clubs. The major league clubs send players down here. Young New Zealand talent coming through. It's a well-established competition. A lot of former major league players, a lot of future major league players. If you're not a big baseball fan, just come for the novelty factor alone. It presents itself beautifully at North Harbour Stadium. 22 and a half minutes away from one, you're listening to SENZ. No, far better looking than Daniel McCarty and Grant Elliott. Well, not really, not really. I just need to talk myself up as we get closer to New Year's. Hopefully everyone has a good night tonight um, and is responsible. More concerned, actually. I mean, drink driving, clearly a major issue in this country. But boy, I tell you, water safety around the beaches at the moment, that's almost an epidemic. Be careful. Be smart. None of this mentality, it won't happen to me. If you're at the beaches on the West Coast particularly, there are flags up. Swim between the flags. Don't be these young guys I see out at Murawai that... I'm too cool to swim between the flags. I've seen how much water moves. I spend a lot of time swimming. I spend a lot of time in and around the surf life-saving community. You could be Michael Phelps in some of those beaches and still get yourself into a world of difficulty. It knows no names. It knows no socioeconomic background. And it doesn't care if you're an influencer. So please be careful around the coast over this holiday period. I just had a couple of texts come in earlier from Simon. He wants to know, why should my taxpayer money keep going to an underperforming Blacksticks team? Yeah, look, it's an interesting one, that one, isn't it? Um, You do wonder whether some of these sports need to go out and look for greater commercial backing. Some of these sports do get a lot of television time, so there are opportunities to leverage commercial partners. Always easier if your sport is on television. 
Um, Simon also asked, what does New Zealand hockey have to do in terms of domestic structure? In terms of giving our black sticks a better chance? Well, I think one of the biggest things that holds hockey back in this country, like a lot of sports, we simply don't have population. But I think the fact that more and more of our hockey players are taking up professional contracts in Europe has only got to benefit this team. But you are right. Really outside of the hockey gold medal in 1976, the men's hockey team probably particularly has underperformed for some time. Silver medal at the Commonwealth Games, not a bad achievement, but it's the Commonwealth Games. Women's team, a couple of fourths of the Olympics, have picked up gold in 2018 on the Gold Coast. Outstanding moment, beating a very good Australian team. But it seems to be success at Commonwealth Games is what continues their funding. And perhaps funding for hockey maybe needs to move to how they perform at a World Championship and Olympic Games level. Put them under a little bit more pressure. Hard that basketball still seems to get little funding, yet I'll argue it is without doubt the biggest emerging sport in country. Everybody's playing basketball. Remember talking to John Ackland, who big rugby league name, of course, who was part of setting up the Warriors. He teaches these days at St Peter's College in Auckland. He said, look, player numbers are down for rugby and rugby league at a junior level. But if you built 30 basketball courts at his school, you'd fill every single one of them. So how do we measure basketball? Because it's very difficult to do well internationally because of the depth globally in it. 0800 150 is the number. Hi, Zane. G'day, mate. Sort of give you a quick call and say uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Very nice of you, Zane. And, um, yeah, I thought I'd share a couple of brick bats and, and bouquets for, for this year. For me. Sure. Um, definite brick bats would go to the two Mark Robinsons, um, the Warriors and for New Zealand Rugby League, uh, New Zealand Rugby. Some really strange decisions by those two throughout the year. And um, bouquets, I'd say, would go to um, Stephen Elka for one for me. What a great story that guy's been this year. Yeah, good luck to him. Well done to him too. Boy, you're living like a king suddenly after toiling for years and probably scraping a living together and now sort of getting to sit back and reward himself. Yeah, mate. The other one would be Wayne Smith and the um, women's rugby. That was a great story. Um, outstanding. And finally, I would say my, my New Zealander, like the, the Kiwi who represents what I really believe Kiwis are all about is Stephen Adams, mate. I love the way that guy carries himself, earning a million dollars a week and just um, such a humble guy, down to earth and uh, proud of everything he does. Yeah, yeah, well said. And that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, how does a guy like him get nominated for a Halberg Award or for Sportsman of the Year? I mean, what are there, 32 teams in the NBA, there's 12 on a roster, he's a starting centre for the Memphis Grizzlies, who a lot of people are saying potentially can win the NBA championship, you know, in a sport that is so incredibly global, it's not even funny. Um, you know, Chris Wood falls into the similar into a, a similar bracket with what he's doing at English Premier League, but... You know, we just, I don't know, we just don't do our due diligence. We we um, are just too narrow in our definition and how we, and how we um, equate uh, individual performances against each other. Yeah, but finally, the, the biggest hope for me for next year, Andrew Webster, mate, I think that guy's got some um, serious 
intelligence, leadership and communication. So Warriors die hard here, hoping next year will be a little bit better. Oh, it, um, it, it won't be, Zane. <laughs> I've got to believe. <laughs> it won't be, but because it starts at the top and... Look, yeah. a, a fresh voice will do something initially, but it, look, I think it's a culture thing and I think it's a cultural thing that runs through rugby league as a whole. I I'd still would like to see sets of eyes from people who have been in other sporting environments running their eyes over this organisation and the Warriors having the vision to write a book that everybody else reads rather than just sort of following one that's always been in place. 100%, mate. Well, you have a great um, 2023 and good luck to the, the little kids there that seem to be doing outstanding things on the um, water out there. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Look, my boy's nine and my daughter's 11. I'm realistic. This year's, you know, water polo or surf life-saving is next year's netball or basketball player. But oh, like anything, you know, I'm just pleased my kids have got into sport. But in saying, in saying that, I actually have, I stand right back from it. I, I, I don't get involved um, because like most kids, they never listen to their parents anyway. They always listen to other people. 100%, mate. Same with my daughter, but she's loving it. Yeah, what's she do, Zane? Um, well, this year she's done netball. She just started track and field, came second in the high jump for the Wellington or the Greater Wellington area. Oh, region. brilliant. Well and, done. Uh, first, first time ever. So, yeah, mate, she's getting into anything and everything, so it's good to see. So she's got her mum's talent? Oh, yeah, 100%. Man, <laughs> her mum's talent. <laughs> <laughs> went in high jump with mine. <laughs> hey, Zane, lovely to have you on the programme. Have a great new year, mate, and thank you for contributing to the programme in 2022. Thank you. 11 minutes away from 1 o'clock. You're listening to SENZ. Nice to have some journey to finish this particular edition here on SENZ. Louis Herman Watt, Mark Clayton up next with the good oil, talking all things racing. Big time of year for racing in this country, isn't it? Special thanks to Ben Francis too for putting this show together. We will do it all again on Monday. January 2nd congratulations to all those recipients in the New Year's Honours I don't have an issue with people winning those awards I have more of an issue in and around the inconsistencies of how some people can get particular awards over others how much of it these days is just virtue signalling how much of it is just political correctness how woke is a lot of it, and how much due diligence is actually done? Or is it just a simple case that some sports, some people are just not organised enough to put nominations in? Because you do have to be nominated. Uh, just reminding people too, earlier today, Liverpool got up over Leicester City by two goals to one, and Brentford beat West Ham by two goals to nil. Great to have the Premier League back underway. Fingers crossed Liverpool can continue on their two-game winning streak and become the team they were last season and not the team they were prior to this year's FIFA World Cup. Also, just acknowledgement too to the great Palais, passing away yesterday at the age of 82, without doubt the greatest footballer that ever played the game. Big, big loss for the nation of Brazil. Thoughts go out to them. If you are travelling around the country, it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure. Do take care.